What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today, Chad and Ian sit down with Bill Draper and Pitch Johnson, both of whom paves the way for venture capital in the United States. Bill and Pitch first met at Inland Steel in the late 1950s, instantly becoming friends. Years later, they both left the steel mill and formed a Draper and Johnson Investment Group, starting a lifelong personal and professional partnership in venture capital. On this episode of Mission Daily, Bill and Pitch share their background from how they met at the steel mill to starting in venture capital and how the industry has and has not changed over the years. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Welcome to Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. And to my left, at a undisclosed, like it's not that undisclosed. We can pretend it is. No, we're at Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation and Chad We have some exciting guests. We do. Everyone, this is Chad Grills. I'm really excited for today's interview. Uh, These guests don't need an introduction, but I was hoping that they could each introduce themselves and uh, that we can jump into this. This is an exciting interview for me, so I'll let them take it away. I'm Bill Draper, and uh, I met Pitch Johnson uh, 100 years ago, and (laughs) uh, we've been best friends ever since, and we had a good company started to We've uh, very early in Silicon Valley. And I'm uh, Pitch Johnson and the uh, first 12 years of my life in Iowa where my father was the track and field coach at Drake University. And then when I was 12 in 1940, we moved to Palo Alto. Well, I've been a lot of other places. My heart's been here ever since. And luckily, I've ended up here as well. Uh, I got into venture capital my first civilian job was working in a steel mill and Bill was working for the same steel company in the sales area. So we met by living in houses near each other, company houses, they called them. And so after a while, Bill left to join his father in a pioneer venture firm and he wanted to get on his own. And I didn't want to get out of the mills, but I thought it'd be smart to have a chance to form some capital and be on my own. So I joined Bill in 1962. And Bill left the mills, mill, met the company in, in 59. But it was, it's been a long... The thing about our relationship has been as much friendship as has been business partner, I'd say. What was it that drew you together? Like, what was the thing that you liked about each other? Like, you know, there's lots of other people that were trying to do stuff in business, but, you know, why'd you... I can answer that. The town we met in was East Chicago, Indiana, which uh, was at that time the the kind of pits of the universe because it was just a mill town with and, and anyway the 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 four of us pitch's wife Kathy and my wife Phyllis and I and pitch uh, became best friends because I think we probably were the only ones without a college education in the little town and uh he, uh, he met with, right? What? With a college education. Yes. You were the only one. Yeah, okay. Not quite, but so, yeah, it's close. Yeah. Sure, sure. Close enough. Yeah. And uh, we had a, uh, a lot of fun together. We saw each other, you know, very frequently uh, every couple of days. 
And uh, I think that's... So I, w- I moved out here in California because my dad started a venture capital company, the first one in the West. There were two in New York. Uh, there's one in Boston, the, the uh, American Research and Development Company. And, and two, there was the, the, um, the Rockefellers and the Whitney's. And that was all there was in the way of venture capital at that time. And so uh, when I left my dad's company about a few years later, uh, I asked jo- uh, Pitch to join me. He was from Palo Alto, had gone to Stanford, and, all, and his friends have become my friends. Uh, and we, uh, you know, we got along together very well, obviously. Uh, so it uh, it turned out to be a a good decision we for both of us. We made a good bit of money, and we had uh, made a lot of friends, and we had a lot of fun. It was difficult for me to leave the mills. It doesn't sound like it would be, but I spent eight years there. The first, first just as they had you do the work of a, the unions put up with it because you didn't take any union guy's place, but I did the same work as the man. That was how they trained you. And uh, when I... The superintendent of a department is a big deal. Yeah. And uh, so when I, my first day on the job, they ushered me into the superintendent's office, and he's in charge of about about 1,200, mostly men, but men and women. And he said, welcome to number two open hearth pitch. Uh, We've had college kids here before. He said very matter-of-factly. And he said that... um, we're going to teach you how to make steel, but I'm not going to teach you how to make steel. The men out there on the floor are going to teach you how to make steel. So I don't care if you do anything else for the first six months, you get to know those men, get to know their families, get to know where they drink, get to know where they eat, what they, what they like to do. And it was such good advice for an eager beaver Harvard Business School graduate. I mean, I just gotten out of the Air Force, but that was a very interesting time, but not at all a career path. So... I would say that's one of the great pieces of advice that I ever had in my life is get to know the people when you're going to work in an organization and then work with them. And he said, another thing you need to know, every job in this, uh, uh, every job in this open hearth is important. He said that the mill clerks, the heat clerks uh, were some mostly women uh, and uh, the, well, I won't name all the jobs, but the first helper of a furnace is the big deal. Yeah. And so... I got to know the first, second, and third helpers in my where I was assigned. And I think when I became a foreman, which, which is the objective of the whole thing, uh, assistant foreman later on, they accepted me because they knew me. And I never, I think I never tried to get too fancy. But uh, I, I've th- thought about that lots of times. When you go into an organization for any purpose, get to know the people. And if you hire somebody, get to know him or her. A little, a, quite a bit before you start giving them too many instructions. Are there any uh, examples or stories of how that early investment in people led to less work or better outcomes for you later on at the mill? Well, at the mill or after the mill? Either before, or during, well, or after. In, yeah. in the mill, I would say when I became a foreman, I knew enough to let the men do their work. Now, I didn't try to tell the first helper how to run a furnace. <laughs> That'd be super. Guy's been doing it 40 years. Sure, yeah. I tried to tell him. So I just... Uh, I 
I did have to make some decisions. When you tap a heat, you got to make some, usually you throw some stuff, alloys and stuff in the, and I had to make those calculations, paper and pencil or in my head. But it was really a job of letting the men do their work that they already knew. And so that has become, that was something I learned in the Air Force before that, by the way. When I was um, in Sacramento, I was assigned to a, a base. And so as I went out on the floor of the hangar, did overhauls, this master sergeant came up who master sergeants run the military, by the way. And, and he said, welcome, Lieutenant Johnson, to the base. He said, I have the best man in the Air Force here, and we'll do our job, and you, you tell us what you want done. He didn't say, tell us how to do it. And it was very <laughs> clear what he was saying to me. And I got the same message. I didn't realize that till later <laughs> when, the, when the superintendent gave me the same message. But I'd say that's one of the more important things. I, I don't always get along with everybody, but I... I try to get along and get to know people a lot before I work with them. Both Pitch and I know that the most important thing you can do in starting up a new business is to get to know the entrepreneur that's going to lead the team and will he carry through when the going gets tough and uh, are you going to be able to communicate well with him? Is Is he a team player? Is he likely to be able to attract other good uh, people around him so that uh, you have a successful company? So it, it fits very, very well, what Pitch was saying. In my time in the military, one of the things that, you know, is always over and over talked about is like task and purpose, right? Like give them the task and give them the reason why they're doing it. And I think that a lot of times, that like is lost somehow in like startup culture of like, hey, don't just tell someone to do something, tell them why you want them to do it. And then the other thing that I was thinking about from the army is like distance and direction, right? Is like, I, this is how, this is the direction I want you to go. And this is how far I want you to go. And I think that those two things, like when you're an early stage founder, I think is really hard sometimes to like, you know, think about because you might not be familiar with it or whatever. Was there certain advice that you would give to your founders? One of the things that all startups are like when they're small, and although some of them have a lot of money these days, but you have a little money, there's usually a, a man or a woman and a group of five or six people. And the, the person in charge is used to making decisions helping people do their work, but in telling them what to do. And one big step is turning that over to another in-between person when you grow. If you don't, if you can't, if you try to supervise everybody for your whole career, it won't work. So once you get to about six or seven people, or maybe 10, you got to, you got to delegate some of that responsibility and supervision to somebody. And that's a great failure point for some people just never let go. It's hard to let go, right? Are there any um, any advice for letting go or, you know, building that trust that is required with your executives or your board members or investors so you can let go more and, and delegate? Well, I would say uh, if you, well, first of all, the job that we have is usually helping to build a good board, helping to inspire as well as listen to carefully the entrepreneur that you're backing and support him when the going gets rough in the border or in whatever way we can. 
So, yeah, the answer is you, you've really got a lot of parts to your job as a venture capitalist, but the job is not to run the company. And the job is to much more of a supportive role. And uh, that is crucial in some cases. In some other cases, it doesn't matter. I mean, Steve Jobs probably would have been very successful without any venture capitalists telling him what to do. And I think it probably went that way anyway, because he probably didn't listen. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. I actually want to talk about founders that don't listen, because I think there is that part of your mind where you're like, I see something that needs to exist that doesn't exist. And there's not a lot of people that are thinking necessarily that way. And so you kind of want to block out some of what people are telling you. Let me take the other side of that coin to start with. I remember one time, we were sitting in a board meeting with a young entrepreneur, a good one, happened to be a man in this case. And he said to us, I have three courses of action that I want the board to choose for me. And I just jumped, practically jumped out of my chair and said, you choose this course of action and you, I almost in this bluntly, you tell us what you want to do. If we don't like it, we'll tell you. But don't tell, tell us you've got three things that you, you can do and, and have us choose one. I, I never heard that before or since, but it, was, it really bothered me a lot because that, this guy's not left that leadership. No. And um, I would be really curious just to shift gears for a moment too. what was Silicon Valley like in the early days? So obviously, you know, more orchard was not, was not named that as one thing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Many of us are familiar with that the uh, defense community began investing here and then venture capitalists came. Uh, but I would love if both of you could take us back to the early days and maybe share some stories or um, paint a picture for what it was like uh, in the well, early days. I grew days. up here, but I was and I went to school here both high school and Stanford in 1950. And then after that, it was Harvard and the Air Force. So I think I'm going to ask Bill to start with the earlier times. He's a few years ahead of me living here. Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to um, have a father who, he ran the Marshall Plan at one time. Wow. And uh, Averill Harriman suggested that he um, uh, get an assistant. And so he got a deputy, uh, Fred Anderson, who was uh, suggested uh, would make a good uh, partner for him. And uh, it turned out that the two of them worked together on the Marshall Plan for about three years. And then and then they came uh, back to the United States. Both of them knew Northern California. My father had been an investment banker and he uh, were, uh, worked on the uh, the financing of the, old, of the Oakland Bay Bridge. And so that's how he knew Northern California. And Fred Anderson was in the um, uh, Travis Air Force Base up a few miles north of San Francisco. So the two of them knew they wanted to be in Northern California because the, <laughs> the weather and the other reason yeah. that all of the rest of us moved out here. So uh, then I was lucky enough to be asked to be one of young, three or four young guys to start the first venture capital company west of New York. I um, really uh, didn't know beans about anything except I. when I got here, I realized this was heaven. <laughs> and it was not hard to imagine that it would be a lot different uh, in a few years than it was. At that time, 
the uh, the uh, there were a lot of uh, orchards, uh, fruit orchards, and uh, it was very. There were barns. And there and, was a Palo Alto, and there was country. Then there yeah. was Mountain View, and there was country. Then there was Sunnyvale, yeah. and there was country, and then there was San Jose. Uh, and uh, it's it's that's one major yeah difference. Definitely, we would look. Pitch and I would knock on doors. It might, it might be a barn door, but it said something <laughs> electronics on the door. And so we would knock on that door. Otherwise, we'd let the barn go. So, uh, and we'd ask to see the president. And they said, well, what do you do? Are you, well, we're venture capitalists. And, and they said, well, <laughs> you know, what is that? <laughs> they, what is that? Finally, they, the president would come out and when he heard that what we do is we'd say eventually that we give money to companies that he was out there in a second as soon as uh, he learned that. And, and we uh, uh, then sized the people up and took uh, time to, to research and look learn a little bit about the industry that they were going into. And then, uh, and then we would uh, either lay a, a bet down and say, okay, let's be partners and negotiate a deal. And, uh, or we would say, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, we had a lot of fun. We, we, we rented a blue uh, Oldsmobile, I think, at Pontiac. And we... Uh, Pontiac, uh, that's right. Pontiac. Pontiac. <laughs> and, and, they don't make them anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. And uh, they don't make much, many of us anymore. <laughs> but anyway, we, we had one hell of a good time. And it was fun to be a part of uh, what has become Silicon Valley. And uh, very, we didn't back the very, the reason it's called Silicon Valley, the, the silicon that was made by Fairchild, I think, uh, initially. And then Arthur Rock uh, was a fine finan financial guy that, it was out here very early too, and and anyway, we have we just had a little club by that time of people like Rock and ourselves and a few others that would. Yeah, we meet. had a dinner in the city every month or so, and it was twelve people, it was all the venture capitalists, and even about four or five of those were real estate guys, <laughs> but they called themselves. I mean, it wasn't like technology. And so we would talk about deals. And one, one characteristic that was much different was very easy to get in a deal. If you heard somebody was doing a deal or they heard you were, and you, because you, your reputation was you help with it, it was very easy to get involved in deals. Now, later on, that became more competitive. But in those early days, in the early 60s, uh, I remember these dinners very well. And uh, there was very little money and very few deals is, is the way I'd characterize it. Yeah, I'm curious. One of my um, friends has a uh, multi-generational family business that his grandfather started. And he said that a lot of the times they were in the early days, just like figuring out a way to do deals with their friends because they were like, there was just so few people around to do business with. So it was like, it would be totally different types of companies, but it's like, oh, hey, I know that you need some extra money to buy that to buy that space, I'll lend it to you and things like that. I'm curious, like, 
what were founders like back then? Were entrepreneurs different than they are now? Or was it, you know, were, was it less formal? Was it less, you know? I would say they were amazingly alike. Hmm. There are people, mostly men. In fact, there's still mostly men, but hardly any women back then. Yeah. Now there's, we're involved in several women entrepreneurs, but they, they have um, a vision almost always of what someone might want. And quite often they have a technology idea that they have, that they decide could be people could be made to want it, or they would want it. But some people start off with technology on their brains. But the guys that are the best are the ones that have markets on their brains. They said, "What would people like to have?" And um, that has not changed very much. I would say the uh, willingness to step out on your own or with some friends. The, the difference is now it's, there's much more money available, but step out and take the risk. Realize that you don't know what's going to happen. And when th- bad things happen, then you have to be, you have to suck it up and get through it. That is still the same. Now, these young companies that somehow raised you know, $30, $40 million to start, they don't have that problem. They, but they could blow, once they blow their money, it's the same problem. Yeah. So I'd say, I'd say market-oriented vision, good knowledge of technology, and ability to, ability to get a bunch of people together that will work together. There wouldn't be a Silicon Valley, I don't think, without Stanford University. I try to point that out every time uh, I talk about what happened in the early days, because uh, the engineering division of Stanford was second to none in the country. The other thing that happened uh, at Stanford, uh, there was a guy who was the provost of Stanford uh, at the time, and and uh, I'm trying to think of his Fred name. Terman. Yeah, sure. Uh, Fred Terman, yeah. He was dean of engineering when I was in school. Yeah. He later on became provost, but he was a super dean that you could go see well, you could not just walk in his office, but you could see him within a couple hours. He wanted to have the students come see him, and he did. And Terman was the one, I think, I give credit to anyway, who um, realized that these engineers that were grinding out of Stanford uh, needed financing to start the business that they wanted or make the product that they wanted. And so he uh, was smart enough to put... For instance, I was with the first venture capital company, Draper Gaither and Anderson, uh, and he put us on the Stanford campus. Stanford had 9,000 acres or uh, no, nine, how many, huge number, 90,000 or something. Sure. And a huge uh, empty area. But anyway, rented, they, they didn't sell any land ever. That was Leland Stanford's requirement. But uh, but the uh, 99-year lease, you know, the, that's what we had at Draper, Gaither, and Anderson, which was the first, the, uh, the Gaither in that was a lawyer who was a very fine man in San Francisco, and uh, and my father and, and this Fred Anderson. And anyway, they they uh, had a, uh, a way of... Uh, People came to us because we were the only game in town at that time. Now it's the other way around. I think uh, 
the venture capitalists have, have a tougher time finding good deals. And uh, there are few, there are probably more of the potential of them with the talent that's around here, but, but there was less, uh, uh, anyway, today I think uh, it's a totally different world and Silicon Valley is known in Paris and Germany and uh, all over the world. So it's uh, been an exciting run. And uh, I still, I, I'm now totally in nonprofit work, but also venture capital. Draper uh, Richards Kaplan is, no, uh, is known for venture-like deals uh, that help people in health education or environment or whatever. So that's, uh, the story keeps growing and uh, this part of the world is, while it's well known uh, around the world, it's, uh, I think it's just beginning. One thing that was true then, people thought if we build a big company, a good company, we can make some money. So, but they build a big company and build a good company came first in their minds. Nowadays, people, I think, focus often on making money and, and not on what they're doing. Yes. And so I think it's been clear that there were some good returns from some good deals. People, there's money looking for work all over the world. And they began to see the rates of return that some investors got in, in, in deals. And so venture capital firms were started, uh, we had a private one of our own without outside capital, but and they began to make some money and attracted more and more money. And then it, I don't, I'll skip over the gener, all the decades, but now you have literally billions, maybe twenty billion. Uh, some some years, a hundred billion will come into the business. Some people call it venture capital, but what they're they're bidding up the prices of these private deals. You've heard of unicorns, of course. Sure. And the uh, people will invest a hundred million at a two billion valuation, hoping it'll go to two and a half or three, and or, or more likely sub billion, but close to it, and hope it gets over, up over a billion. But I think the thinking is more financial than it is building a business, working with the entrepreneurs, figuring out markets. But there's really no sharp line between what I call venture capital, and it's all called venture capital, by the way, but I feel cynical about the... There's nothing illegal or wrong or sure. wrong yeah. with it. You make an honest buck, great. But it, it, it uh, it's changed the business and changed the way we think about forming companies. The thing that I think is so cool is just how clear both of you remember the people that impacted you over the years and like how you talk about building companies and founders and entrepreneurs. Don't ask me a bunch of names then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that one of the things like looking back on your career that I think a lot of people, you know, focus early in their career about the money that they can make, but they don't realize that you can make a friendship that lasts 60 years or you can make a business relationship that lasts 40 years or that these things come back over and over and over again. And like, you know, people talk about like building a network, like you just go to some social events and have a couple of beers or something. But it just seems like you really both have cared about the idea of like building a market, building a company, um, building something that creates opportunities for a lot of people. Um, which is kind of why I could see that you'd be cynical about how money is invested now. Like well, Cynical isn't quite the right word. It's just that 
Okay, different. Yeah, different. Yeah, it's, sure. Uh, Maybe wary. They're sort or... of they're not less pure because people are money's looking for work, right? And they're trying to find some place that they they make a lot of make making money for others, and that, that's true. But I I don't look down my nose at it, or I'm cynical. I just say it's different, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. So then what, so what was so, and even going back to those original deals that you were doing with, you know, Draper and Johnson or whatever, you know, we talk like there's all this content and things about diligence and what goes into diligence and what data are you trying to pull? What was diligence like back then? What were you looking for uh, in those early deals or throughout your career for companies that can make a difference? My concentration was mostly on the entrepreneur or the team, if it's uh, uh, to make uh, to make sure that I knew that uh, they would stick by it in a tough time. They, that they would uh, uh, think creatively and be uh, capable in uh, uh, trying to check out what they knew, you know, make sure they knew the product and the, the territory anyway that they were going into, even if there was no product there, but he, they were going to uh, design one. I uh, I was focused very much on the people uh, that would be in the team. Other people, uh, uh, like, um, who, who's the guy that thinks, says market is the most important thing. Don Valentine. Don Valentine yeah. thinks the market is the most important thing and the rest doesn't matter. I've been in a lot of always change the people. Yeah, that was his idea. My my <laughs> attitude was, uh, you know, I'd be a little more loyal probably to try and hold on to the people. Uh, sure. But anyway, they, that, that, that was a difference in our uh, approach. And luckily, there are lots of venture capitalists who have different approaches than either of those and just, uh, you know, make it all work. Now, so, we're, we're specialists now where we weren't then. I use the term we quite loosely. But when we started with Bill and I, we, we looked for pretty much electronic deals, I guess we call them. If the company had an IX or ICS on the yeah. end of it, that interested us. But um, now, I mean, leaping, it really is a big leap from the late 60s to the, to the, to the late teens. Yeah. Um, but uh, many firms are specialized, biotech, banking, uh, all that kind of software. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the company, Salesforce. Yeah. That, that was built around uh, a market, and, and brilliantly, I, I might say. But I, my thinking is that the firms are specialists. Some firms are broader, have several men or women specializing in different things. But I think firms are specializing now that they didn't in the early days. And I'm really curious to know when you're you were getting started after you found some success in early deals, what was the larger financial community? How did they view venture capital? Did they think it was weird? Were they excited about it? Um, did you get you some know, flack for starting a venture very firm? Very few people who were really big successes in the financial world paid any attention to us. Well, <laughs> that, that is correct. And uh, so finally, uh, something happened. I uh, remember being at Sutter Hill, the company that I started, uh, that's uh, still around, by the way, in Palo Alto. I was uh, a little astonished when 
three guys from Goldman Sachs came out to visit me. And I said, what the hell is it? Why are they interested in me, you know, and what has happened? And what was, what they were realized, what they realized uh, was that uh, a return of, you know, 20 times in three years was a really startling thing for, for Wall Street. And, uh, and to me, that was kind of, that's where what we're meant to do. <laughs> ten I didn't times pay much five, attention. Ten times in five years is a fifty percent, fifty-seven percent internal rate of return, and that'll catch anybody's eye. Uh, if I've always sort of said this, and not too carefully, but out of ten deals you do, one will be the real barn burner, giving my Midwestern roots uh, <laughs> away, and uh, then um, about. Two or three deals will be good standard performers. You know, they, maybe 10 times your money, maybe five times your money in a few years. Then there's um, there's about two or three that will fail. Uh, it isn't really that bad, uh, uh, but it's about that bad. And then we also have one deal in there I call the living dead. It just never go, give or succeeds, never fails. Just, just hangs just in there. Going. Yeah. And I had a a course which I taught at Stanford Business School in about venture capital for 12 years uh, due to a guy at Sutter Hill who was left at Sutter Hill Real Estate, left town, and uh, asked me to take over for one year. Well, 12, it ended up as 12 years. But that class, by the way, was a very important part of my life for a while. And uh, uh, some of the students have done a lot of good things. The most famous right now is Joe Lacob. <laughs> yeah, he's doing, uh, yeah. He's, he's doing pretty good. He's doing fine. But, but, uh, but um, I, I think that in our class, I tried to talk about, uh, well, we, we did cases, and it was mostly class discussion. And, and, and a discussion, you learn more from the students than they learn from you, at least as much. I've noticed that quickly. But the uh, having the students understand that uh, these the, the markets, what the markets are, and this, this whole area of people and markets and technology, this is a balance. It isn't any one thing. you got to do it all with technological deals, and there's a lot of those. So I would say that those 12 years, even though they were busy and I was in overload, which who minds it, it were very meaningful to me, and it, it resulted from just one chance encounter, a guy saying to me, would you take over my course? I've got to move to Canada. <laughs> I think it's so interesting how you both talk about, you know, education playing such an important role, and like education is obviously changing a ton, but it's like these ideas that these small kind of cohorts or, you know, a group of people, whether it's, you know, the group that you were meeting in San Francisco once a month or whether it's a, a school cohort at, you know, GSB or, or whichever. I'm curious, like, how did you focus on improving your education throughout your career? Like, how did you learn or stay up with what was going on? Well, that, that's a really, in my case, and Bill, too, but in my case, uh, I got out of school in 1950 as an ME graduate. I went to Harvard Business School. I won't explain. I just I decided I didn't want to be a design engineer. I went to Harvard Business School and I, to learn what business was. By, by the way, they wouldn't let me in when I first said that. So I argued with them that I was the kind of guy, I'm a nationally ranked athlete. I, I want to come here. 
And I want to find, I honestly say, I don't know what business is. I want to learn. And, and I'll be damned they let me in. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but uh, it was um, in 1964, Bill and I had been working together for two years. And I realized I didn't know anything about biology, modern biology. I could name the, you know, Latin names for certain animals, but that was about it. So I, they had a course in molecular biology then. It was I just heard about that, and it seemed obvious I had to learn more. And this course turned out to be a key course in my later life because we learned the incredible fact that you could take human genes and put them in non-human animals and make human hormones. Yep. I mean, it sounds like... Nothing. Who? Of course you can. It was really, we did it in a lab. <laughs> and we actually did that then. And we had guest speakers in this course, uh, Berg and Kornberg, by the way, both Nobel Prize winners, wow. and uh, and a guy named, and I, I just, uh, I, I, did, I wouldn't say I lucked out because I did it on purpose. And I took another course in... Um, in computer science, because there wasn't there was none when I was there, and I learned about programming and what computers do. So I'd say those two courses had very much shaped my professional life uh, uh, later. I took a course in partial differential equations. But I decided I couldn't do that, so I wouldn't head down the <laughs> physics pathway. I always think it's one of the huge advantages of being a venture capitalist, and I think that's why you know we want to talk about angel investing here. But I think that's one of the huge advantages of people being angel investors now is that they're just around so many like you know, smart founders and they just get to learn a lot of stuff. And usually those smart founders are experts in whatever their field is. Like, did you feel like because you got access to so many deals over the years, especially like early days with, you know, like Amgen and things like that, where, you know, really being at the cutting edge of, of technology and healthcare and biosciences, like, was that an advantage to talk to all of these, you know, smart folks, whether it's at Stanford or founders? Oh yeah, no doubt about it. But I was an economic, economic, uh, and history major at Yale. And, uh, so I didn't rely on my own technology competence <laughs> or any uh, anything near it. I, I always uh, recognized that I didn't know what I didn't know, and I uh, depended a lot on guys with a technical degree like Pitch uh, and a lot of others here around here. And of course, I. If I had started up my venture capital company in St. Louis, I, I don't think we would be having this interview. <laughs> I think I think it was uh, a blessing that I came out here and uh, mixed it up with so many talented people, so that my friends, neighbors, and so on, really, uh, I would know that they were specialists in this or that, and and could uh, rely on that. One of the interesting things about my focus was how it changed. I was the son of a track coach, so I grew up thinking track and field was all there was. I gradually learned other sports, and then I gradually learned some other parts of the university, even where they study stuff. But then uh, that's, of course, was a young kid. But when I went to, um, my, my dad was an Olympian also, so I had that as a goal. So when I got to high school, my focus, even though I liked studying and liked things, my focus was on an athletic career, and I pictured myself going off to college and being a national champion and all that stuff. Didn't happen. But um, I also had a, a couple of exciting teachers. I had a physics 
teacher in high school, you made me realize that it's exciting to learn how things happen. And, and so there are other good teachers, too. I don't want to go into them all. But when I got to Stanford, I suddenly realized that if I was something to study, you had to take a lot of liberal arts courses, which was a really great idea. But I decided I wanted to, I started off maybe majoring in physics, and then I thought, no, I think I'll settle in on engineering. But in the back of my mind always was all those hours on the track every day, and that, and I, and I had certain regional success, you know, the conference meet and all that, but I didn't get to a national level or certainly not an international level. So I began to adjust, adjust to the fact that I'd better do something else as the focus of my life. And it became, to start with, technology. And then uh, when I went to business school, I, 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 oh, I, in school I began to meet guys whose fathers were businessmen instead of athletic or coaches. And so I, began to, I just, it sounds impossible, but I began to see, oh yeah, business is actually something you can do. And I got interested in that. And I went to business school, learned something about it. Went in the Air Force uh, because the Korean War was on. I would have got drafted otherwise. Had a good experience there, by the way. And then um, I then uh, uh, went to work in the steel mills because I wanted to, wanted to have a, a business career. But production was one of the pathways. Production, marketing, finance. There are lots of ways to get ahead in a company. So that Harvard Business was kind of the West Point of business in those <laughs> days. And they weren't so many consultants or financial guys. It was business, corporate careers was where we were focused. But sure. I, um, you know, I um, uh, heard somebody fairly recently uh, say, you know, when we look back at a life, we realize we did not thank so many people who helped us get where we got. And it's so true. You yeah. You think back on... My God, I, I never really thanked that guy. He had such an impact on my life, or that gal. And, and it's uh, it, it's really true, and it's something that you guys, younger than we are, have more of an opportunity to do. But that is good advice to be sure you thank people as you go along for what they have done for you. Wise words. I've been bad about thanking people. I, I certainly agree with Bill 104%. It just, um, it's just, you run into people, they lend you a hand. The only thing that's affected me, I've been quite, partly because of my teaching part, but partly because I, I'm pretty available to, to young people who want to come see me. You can't, there's just too many of them yeah. to do it. But I, I try to find a time to, somebody says, I got a friend who's just getting out of school, he'd like to talk about venture capital. I realize it's important that I do that, and I do that even now pretty often. It's funny. So you mentioned, because I went to West Point, you mentioned West Point being the, you know, Harvard being the business part. Well, I went to West Point and didn't do engineering. I went and did a management degree because I was like, I'm horrible at engineering. So did you go to West Point? Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, and so I it, thought you said you stayed at PFC or something. No, no, no. no, no. My, dad. Dad. <laughs> yeah. my dad. Yeah, my dad. Yeah. Well, no, he didn't. He wished he had stayed at PFC. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he got he got knocked down too many times. But yeah, it was funny though, when I went to West Point and I remember seeing all of the lore about engineering and how important engineering was for a hundred years and like all of these sort of things. And so studying business there was something like still isn't, now it's way more popular, but still isn't something that Why was, did they have a business 
courses. That's exactly right. Well, I, I'm, I'm surprised you're saying <laughs> that. I don't doubt you, of course, but why would they have a business course at West Point? Well, it's like, you know, there's like whatever, 20 CEOs in the Fortune 500 or West Point grads. And I think they realized, I, I think they were teaching yes, talent. I think, or, yeah. I think it was a very important thing yeah. to teach leader, leaders because it's all about leadership and uh, business and and uh, and the military and not all that different. Sure. Yeah. And well, and, and the thing that was so interesting to me was like this idea of like an alumni network and like having a lore and having history and like having that stuff matter. And like, it's not always good or bad. It just kind of is what, you know, the history is. And I'm curious, like both of you have built, you know, families that are successful, that are uh, ingrained in business, having a legacy, building organizations that are still around. I mean, the fact that your companies that you built are still around is so like inspiring and remarkable. I'm curious, like, how do you view building for the long term, building something that endures rather than, you know, building for a quick exit or a quick buck? The best answer to that is that you you want to have a, a vision of uh, the long term. And as despite, I mean, uh, with that, you also need the um, ability to just meet your opportunities uh, and avoid the risks and or take the risks uh, that were important to get to that long-term vision, but not concentrate too much on just having to, uh, you see, Get get to that big, exciting future before you take one step at a time. Because you, you know, you, you, climbing a step of stairs, you you take the first step, and you got to keep concentrating on making sure you don't fall on that on the next step. So I I would say that uh, it's a combination of a a vision of where you want to get to or at least some vague idea of where that is, and a very precise following day by day what, uh, uh, you know, the next step up. And uh, that'd be my my answer to that. So I got to ask now before I forget, uh, Pitch, you mentioned your father was an Olympian, and Bill, you mentioned your father helped create and administer the Marshall Plan. That can be pretty intimidating i mean i, I would yeah. imagine um, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm curious to know what was that like uh great, great what were your father's like and yeah partly inspiring definitely and partly how can i live up to that De- definitely yeah um and i pursued a completely different kind of life than my dad who was a coach both at stanford not, not he wasn't my coach at stanford that was i was later but at, at Drake, and, and he built the Drake Relays and a lot of things you probably haven't heard of, but it was very important. But I, um, I would say it's a combination. And uh, when, I, when I realized in my, late in my college running career, I had an athletic scholarship and now all free ride sort of thing. But I realized, hey, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to be... Uh, in a, I ran in a national meet 
and got fourth, and they took three guys on the international circuit. So, you know, I just was missing. I was a, I was a B plus instead of an A an A, and but my dad never pressed me. He never made me feel like it was. He was great because uh, he he, um, he wasn't Olympic champion either. By the way, he went out in the semis because he hit a couple of hurdles. But that was a, it was a very good perceptive question. But it, it's a mixed a mixed feeling. But I love my dad. He loved me. And he made me know it and feel it, and never made me feel like I wasn't making it. Uh, uh, and I, uh, Bill can speak for his dad, but I knew his dad very well. Tremendous, wonderful person. Yeah, I I was uh, never had the problem of thinking about competing with my father. He was hugely successful internationally. Uh, as I say, he ran the Marshall Plan, and uh, I. Um, but that was only one of the steps in his career, uh, and he. Uh, uh, was just like pitches that never, you know, looked at me with the idea of why don't you do more than you're doing. And in fact, it was pretty funny. I hadn't seen him for a while and he came and I told him that uh, these little investments that we had made here and, and he had started also here. So he knew about that, but, uh, <laughs> so he came to me, I hadn't seen him for a while, and he said, well, I guess that makes you a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> and he seemed terribly shocked, and I thought, you know, no, it really, it, it's pretty easy out here, and I didn't think much about it. But he, he, uh, he was one of the really superstars in uh, the diplomatic world, and uh, I have... Uh, Ever since knowing some of the things that he had accomplished, I have uh, thought, you know, thought to myself, "What a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful family I ended up in." Yeah, you know. So we, the part of the reason that we're connected is, um, you know, Sasha, uh, you know, is super passionate about the veteran community because and the in the. Uh, immigrant community and immigrant veteran founders. Um, but also we just had Jesse on uh, one of our other podcasts earlier this week. Oh, you're no for, kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I oh my goodness. That. Yeah. Her, uh, she, we did an interview for her for our other podcast, the journey, but it's so funny, like how small of a world it is. Yeah. And that's why you gotta behave. That's true. <laughs> exactly. That's true. Why'd you look at me when you said that? <laughs> but I'm curious, like, did, were there moments, you know, throughout your career where, you know, you looked back and just realized like how small of a world it was or, oh, this one thing that you, you did at this one time that came back to either haunt you or to help you that, you know, behaving in the right way. I mean, it seems like you couldn't do what you had done if, if you weren't, if well, you weren't I'll tell helpful. You, Bill Draper has never disappointed me by his behavior, his honesty, his doing what he say he would do or not doing what he say he would do. He's just, and I, and I believe, I think, I've tried to, to be that. Uh, when you're a partner, you are affected by that other person, and I was affected in a positive way. But on the other hand, I don't think my parents would have put up with me for a second if I hadn't done that stuff. So it's important that you behave. And I've been shocked, as we all have, by some of the news about famous people lately. Sure. 
And uh, I suppose I was aware of all that stuff, but I didn't pay any attention to it. I'd love to hear, too, you mentioned Leland Stanford earlier and Don Valentine and, and folks like that. People, people like Leland Stanford and Don Valentine, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> you and, need to uh, accept that, yeah. And um, <laughs> I would love to hear, was there anyone else that you two drew inspiration from? I mean, obviously there was, but was there anyone you worked with closely early on in your career or maybe for a long period of time that uh, you feel, you know, really helped you out? In my case, Pitch Johnson was a, was a big help. And we were good partners together and and his friends and my friends are the same now. And a very, uh, very uh, big impact on me. But, uh, you know, going back, uh, uh, there's no doubt my dad was my biggest inspiration and my uh, uh, and my wife, I turned turned out to be a gem that I, yeah, I'll tell you that story. I was on a boat going over to Europe and. I sat, a woman on the dock uh, who I knew at Wellesley uh, said, look up the Culbertson sisters. And, and I stood in line that I thought was for food, but it was for deck chairs. And uh, these two girls in front of me said, uh, uh, were, stood in front of me and I said, by chance, are you the Culbertson sisters? And they almost dropped, <laughs> dropped the, on the ground because they, they uh, they were. And so we got deck chairs together. And uh, before the trip was over, you won't believe this. My, my wife uh, uh, was wearing another guy's ring and I asked her to marry me on the trip. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. That's How long bold, did you know each other? Uh, about six days. <laughs> I, got, I got a much longer drawn out Trust story. Than that one. Uh, when I, uh, I would have three major my my studies and my fraternity and my track being on the track team we were close because we had dual meets we were much like a cl closer team than they are now but anyway so i told the guys on the track team i don't know any girl i got in harvard business school i don't know any girls back east but i met east of reno is what i really meant <laughs> yeah, so without going through all of the things that one guy gave me kathy's name and uh so I, uh, when, she lived in New York, and so I, uh, we went down there one weekend, and I called her up, looked in the phone book in those days, her dad's name, and uh, I said, can I come call on you? I thought I'd better go have a look before I actually asked her out. <laughs> smart, smart man. So uh, we, uh, it wasn't fast at all, but we dated some but we were in New York, and then in those days, when you invited a girl to come visit you, you had to find a place for her to stay. Yeah. I know it sounds naive, but that's the way it was. And so I've, 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 there was a hotel in, in, in the Cambridge area where she could stay. And uh, so she, I'd invite her up, and she'd come up, and I'd go down there. And, and uh, I went, and I, when I went in the Air Force, I, just, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but it took us three years to get engaged. And I was, I was working hard on that. And I didn't get much acceptance to start with, but I was persistent, just like, a, just like an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it took me five, five years to get engaged, so I'm right there with you. You got to be persistent, you know? Um, do you, I mean, looking back at some of, you know, you, you talked about how you felt, um, you know, toward, towards your fathers, but how do you, how do you instill kind of that 
feeling of support and whether it's to your family members or to other founders. I mean, I think that one of the things is like, you know, going, building a business is a crucible. It is really hard. And sometimes it just matters to have someone in your corner. And when that person, you know, is the one who gives you the money and they believe in you, how did you support, you know, the people in your life? Bill's particularly good at that. So I'm going to throw the question to him. Sure. (laughs) I'll answer it too. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure because I, uh, I have three kids and two girls and a boy. And to, to be honest, they just shoo, took off. <laughs> I mean, one is a very successful actress and, and uh, now has produced a movie that's uh, going to be very good. She is, I mean, it is very good. And you'll maybe see it. She's trying to get it distributed now. Polly Draper. Uh, Becky Draper is uh, very active in nonprofit work in San Francisco area and Tim Draper, I just don't know. People tell me what he's doing because he's off in he's he's in Quebec one day and Portugal in the next. He's and a very hard guy to keep up with. So I've been very successful in his school as well as his corporate life. So my my feeling about that is, you know, you just. Do so much, you. And by the way, I take the credit for all the good, and you know, don't listen to the bad. And, and my wife does deserve some of it. And so, uh, the the two of us, uh, you know, we're very lucky because we got kids who were independent and very uh, strong uh, in their. Uh, you know, attitudes, they hadn't, I don't think they ever had ethical problems uh, that I know of. And, and he, uh, he, Tim, uh, you know, is some, somebody that I'm really uh, very proud of and the two girls uh, equally more so. So anyway, I think uh, it's, it's one of these things you, you have kids and you hope the best for them. You, you give them all the support that, but you don't try to lead, you know, hold them by the hand or because often you're holding it back if you do that. Well, I, uh, I have great kids and not one of them is a sour apple. So <laughs> I won't go into all that stuff, but they're they're fine kids and I'm proud of them. Uh, as far as um, working with uh, uh, people in companies, um, you really, and Bill's awfully good. That's why I, I said that. But you, you when they get down, Men and women get down when they, when the going gets tough sometimes, and they're not always ready for it. And uh, so you you just sometimes you sit down and say, "Suck it up. This <laughs> is tough. I know it's tough. It's tough for a lot of people. Just hang in there. Don't get discouraged. Keep working at it. And uh, by the way, here's another fifty thousand bucks. <laughs> <laughs> that that helps sometimes. Never hurts. Never hurts. Yeah, yeah. or, or now it's five hundred, but I don't. Sure, don't. but in, but in some cases it can hurt, right? So I mean, you mentioned earlier about companies raising thirty or forty million on an idea or early traction or whatever the case is. Uh, I'd be curious to know: Are you optimistic about the future of venture capital, or are you uh, are you worried? I am very optimistic. Some people. Uh, say, well, we're quite pessimistic because the ideas are going, <laughs> you know, the ideas are going to be there floating around looking for the 
the funding or the uh, people to take them on. Uh, so I'm I'm uh, tremendously optimistic, and I think Silicon Valley is just at the at the starting gate. Yeah, I think that I'm optimistic about entrepreneurship because we need new ideas. I'm I'm concerned about an attitude growing that capitalism is bad. Yeah, and that uh, there's something wrong with people making a lot of money. Now, some people think that, and some good good people. I have a friend who's very much spending a lot of money on on his campaign and is saying terrible things about you know, but terrible things about the system we have. But we can't abandon capitalism. We can't think it's capitalism. I realize the problems with it. But look at the way these entrepreneurs have changed our lives. I'm taking the famous one, Bill Gates. <laughs> and, uh, uh, for instance, Microsoft, by the way, has a trillion-dollar market cap. Well, it doesn't have it just for idle. It's got it because we live, we depend on Microsoft products for our everyday lives. Same way with Steve Jobs. He, he, he was going for a while, then he got kicked out and was brought back in. And I'd say the iPhone idea probably has changed the lives of just about everybody. And they built big companies. And, and I, I live across the street from, from Mark Zuckerberg, but I don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, get, if you want to walk your dog at 7, 7.15, <laughs> I understand you can meet. I know two guys have met him that way. <laughs> but he, um, they built successful companies. And once, once you build a successful company then the, 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 uh, we have a system that gets after you, like John D. Rockefeller. Yep. But he was, was a monopolist. Yep. And, and maybe these guys are too, but we can't make it impossible or difficult for, to bring these people along. We've done it for years and a couple centuries, and it's made, it, made, it, made us the leader of the world in business. Now, the Chinese are coming on strong and a lot of other things, but, but the freedom to start in companies and make some money because of that, is we can't stop that. And I'm optimistic we won't. I mean, you hear Elizabeth Warren talk, who's a very bright and interesting woman, but she she, she, she understands all this, but I don't think she's... She, 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 she's she's the not a capitalist. What? She is not a capitalist. Right. She really is a socialist. And I think this brings up an interesting point, which is, uh, you know, early stage investing and entrepreneurship it's the most voluntary game I've ever seen where you don't have to participate. Nobody forces you to buy the product or anything like that. Yeah. And that makes me really uh, optimistic about the future, because if we can all become better stewards of capital, we can fix a lot of the systemic imbalances and everything that we see that folks like Elizabeth Warren or whoever are not but so fond if we're of. We're going to have capitalism and successful people we're going to have some people have more money than other people. It's part of the system. Now, I realize there's tremendous imbalance and all kinds of unfairness, but we I, we just can't kill the system. Agreed. Be, to make it nicer. And the last time I checked, nature and uh, biology are pre pretty harsh mistresses, or uh, they're pretty brutal. So I mean, life is unfair. Um, but I think each of us have an opportunity to you know play the game better, be more ethical, like you said, uh, try to hold our, ourselves. We could to do a, a better standard. job than we have been doing, though of making opportunity more widespread, Definitely. better education, better a attitudes about people. And of course, the uh, I don't even want to start on the racial issue, 
but it, we're going to be more broadly based. We are more broadly based, and it's going to get more so. So we've got to make this capitalist system open to everybody and, and a chance to start companies. Definitely. But I, I'm like Bill. I'm very optimistic we'll solve these problems. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, ultimately it's it's going back to we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? It's like every single innovation, you know, puts us closer ahead. Like you talk about democratizing opportunity. It's like we can have a video call with someone on the other end of the world. They can pitch their, you know, if you're sitting in India or Scotland or wherever it is, you can now pitch a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley on a video call in real time. Like those type of opportunities, technology brings us the opportunity to do stuff that we've never like thought was possible. And some entrepreneur started a company so you can do that. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, well, and I think another piece of this, because we were all in the military and uh, a lot of innovation came from the military in the early days. And and now we have this opportunity where like built off of those innovations more and more and things like GPS and the Internet and all of these things that started as military innovations. And it's like we want yeah, as great as that is, it's like we want other people to build on those technologies, you know, and I think that that's an exciting time for people to be able to look at um, like what can be possible. There's one area which I am worried about. And that is fundamental research. Fundamental research can lead to engineering, can lead to products, but we have to support it both both uh, in corporations and even the government needs to do research because if we don't learn about the nature of things, we're not going to have new kinds of products and new ideas. And so I'm a little worried about lack of emphasis on, on investment in research, both uh, by companies well, then that's their basic job, or by universities and by the government itself. But I think the best thing is probably government support of universities and research institutions doing fundamental research and not trying to have an objective, a commercial objective go, to start with. I couldn't agree more, but there, there's also an element that we should at least bring up. And uh, I do believe that it's important to keep take care of I've even thought that it might be appropriate to to take some part of the government funding and uh, share it with the lowest level the poorest of the poor and uh, and just hand it out in cash and or or whatever to way to do it over a maybe monthly basis or something but there's there are you, you don't want to see people on the streets of San Francisco, you know, begging. And uh, and that, that's a very small element of what I'm talking about. So there's there's something uh, uh, that we've we do have with a great system of capitalism. We do have to make sure we're taking care of the bottom share that. Five uh, percent or two percent, or they can't take care of themselves. Not only take care of, but we've got to open up the system to make sure their kids, even they, have a shot at the, the at the capitalistic system, even at a low level. Definitely, and um, 
so Bill and Pitch, thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been a real treat for me. It's been an honor. I appreciate it. And I'd be curious to know if you had uh, one final thought, story, or anecdote that you want to leave with our listeners. Uh, what is that? The mic is all yours. My uh, suggestion to uh, a piece of uh, advice is for everyone to take an optimistic look at their future and try to succeed in whatever way is a great artist uh, or a, a really lousy artist <laughs> might have uh, the same opportunity to, to make some art that makes sense to them and and it doesn't need to be uh, uh, only them, but it, make sure that you have uh, the uh, enjoyment of succeeding in one step or two along the way and uh, not be afraid to take risks because uh, risk-taking usually uh, ends up... Uh, paying off in some way or another. And those that are the biggest risk takers often make the biggest rewards. And, and I'm not just talking financial. I mean, take, take a risk on a wife and take a risk on, <laughs> on uh, whatever makes sense. But, uh, but be, be willing to take some risks to enjoy your life and, and maximize the uh, future. I guess my... It's partly a concern and partly a hope, but we've got to f support people that want to get along in, in, in our legislatures and our Congress especially. We are, we are too much separate on side. We've got to find a way to get people in there who will bridge the gap. I'm, I'm supportive of something called the, uh, called, uh, the, the Congressional Caucus, which is trying to encourage these men and women to get together and, and find compromises for the national good and not just go off on these one side or the other so strongly and make it a good thing to, to actually compromise your ideas and get something done. So the Problem Solvers Caucus is what I'm trying to say. It's... Um, it's, it's sort of sponsored by a group called No Labels. I don't want to get into the details, but I am more concerned and slightly hopeful that we will solve our political problems by getting more people who can compromise and get together uh, in the center to get things done in Congress. That's my hope and my belief. I, I love it's it. our hope as well. Yeah. Uh, this has been awesome for everyone listening. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time. Take care. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.